I alluded to this, and, and I wish I brought it with me, but I don't see it here. Uh, in, in the passage regarding, uh, and his name shall be, uh, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Um, yeah, but w there's one more thing. Everlasting. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And that really, uh, there, there's the oneness of God there, and in one sense, and again in a hidden uh, way, the fullness of the Trinity is there too. That in Jesus, the fullness, of course that's a prophecy referring to the Incarnation, but we know in the Incarnation, as from the New Testament, that while it is true to say that the second person of the Trinity became man, it's also true that in him the fullness of the Godhead was pleased to dwell. Um, and so in those lines, he shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Well, of course, the Wonderful Counselor is the Holy Spirit. You know, uh, Almighty, Everlasting Father, Almighty God, and there you have, you know, God and the Father, the Prince of Peace. Well, who's that? Well, that's Jesus, you, you know, the Son of God. Uh, who's who's revealed to be the 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 uh, the King of Peace, the Prince of Peace, also in the Old Testament and other places, um, and so we see a reference there um, uh, to again, at least in the sense of it being alluded to, of the Trinity, in that the fullness of the Godhead will be pleased to dwell in Christ Jesus, which uh, is in Colossians chapter one. Also, uh, another passage that comes to mind is when the three angels come to Abraham, Abraham, the father of the covenant. Um, he, he greets them uh, in, in the original languages. He greets them, sometimes referring to them uh, in the plural, the three. But when he calls uh, them my Lord, he addresses them in the singular, uh, which is interesting because, you know, that has often been interpreted as an Old Testament manifestation uh, of, uh, or theophany of the Trinity coming to the Father of the Covenant um, uh, there. Um, of course, there's also then when Jesus makes reference to Abraham, and he says, Abraham saw my day, meaning he was witness to the Incarnation, um, and uh, the fulfillment of that promise made to him on that, on that day of the covenant. And he said, he saw my day and, and was glad. He rejoiced. And then they say, well, how could Abraham have seen your day? You're not yet even 50 years old. And he said, before Abraham was, I am, which is the Old Testament way of identifying, uh, of God identifying himself. Um, Sorry, um, of God identifying himself, um, which is used several times by Jesus, actually, when Jesus says, I am. It actually is, the, is God's name that uh, he's using uh, over and over again. But before Abraham was, I am. Uh, John himself says, he who came after me ranks before me because he was before me. Well, we know from a close reading of Scripture that John the Baptist was at least conceived six months before Jesus was conceived. So what is he saying here? Well, he's saying, he who comes after me, that is, who was born after me, uh, ranks before me, because he is the Lord, because he was before me, because he is the Lord. 
Um, there's also where Jesus points out um, uh, in, in the psalm, My Lord said to my Lord, sit down at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Of course, we know it is Jesus who is seated at the right hand of the, of the Father. And uh, so he says, how could David, referring to his son, call him Lord? Um, because Jesus, as a son of David, meaning in the lineage of David, comes after him in the incarnation, but he's before him and is Lord. Um, and what's interesting there is that the, uh, um, it says, my Lord said to my Lord in the English, but in, in the Hebrew, it's uh, uh, Yahweh said to Adonai. And so it's very interesting to, to, to look at that. Um, so it shows that, yes, the second Lord is God, because that Adonai is used for God. Um, uh, uh, but at the same time, it shows a distinction between the two Lords, too, because there's really only one Lord. But uh, between my Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, Adonai. So uh, it's not Yahweh said to Yahweh, right? Or Adonai said to Adonai, right? It's Yahweh said to Adonai. Um, uh, so uh, um, important. But then there's also this mysterious figure, uh, again in Abraham, with Abraham, um, known as Melchizedek. And we know a lot um, from the letter to the Hebrews as well about Melchizedek, where we get more information about him. Um, but what's interesting about Melchizedek is that um, he uh, greets Abraham, the father of the covenant, and Abraham recognizes him as his superior. Um, how do we know this? Well, one means by which we know this is that Abraham offers a tithe of all that he has to Melchizedek, and the inferior would give the tithe to the superior, which is why I always give my paycheck to my wife. Um, and uh, um, and uh, but the inferior would give the tithe to the superior. Then um, this Melchizedek is is referred to as the king of Salem, the king of peace. And he's also referred to as the priest of the Most High God. Now, it's interesting, back in those days in Abraham, a priest would offer sacrifice. In that region, what would the sacrifice be? An some type of animal, right, some type of animal, lamb or, or something. Okay, what's interesting is that Abraham, who's the greatest, right, because he's uh, the father of the covenant, recognizes this Melchizedek as being his superior, offers him a tithe of everything. Um, he's, this Melchizedek is identified as the king of peace and also as the priest of the Most High God, but his offering, very unusual, is not an offering of uh, animal sacrifice. Does anyone remember what the offering is of this priestly figure, Melchizedek? This is, this is quite stunning. Remember, he, he's king of peace, priest of the Most High God, superior to Abraham, 
right? Which is a mystery, right? Because Abraham was the father of the covenant. He receives tithes from Abraham, and he offers a sacrifice to God as high priest, but not a sacrifice of animals. He offers a sacrifice of bread and wine. Bread and wine. And then we're also told in the letter of the Hebrews something else about this, uh, this character, Melchizedek, and that is that he has no genealogy, no beginning, and no ending. Okay. Um, so who is Melchizedek? An Old Testament type of or foreshadowing of Jesus. Right who has no beginning, that is not part of creation, in the beginning was the word, um, receives tithes from Abraham because of who he is, who's identified as king of peace, uh, priest of the most high God, offers an offering of bread and wine instead of animal sacrifice, which, I mean, would have been the norm, right? Um and uh, so it's, it's interesting. So just as in the beginning of the creation, we see um, types or foreshadowings or revelations, hidden revelations, partial revelations of the Trinity, so we see it also at the beginning of the covenant when Abraham welcomes the three angels and refers to them both in the singular and the plural. When using my Lord, it refers to them in the singular. And then also um, uh, uh, with the, the figure Melchizedek, where we see this uh, um, divine being who has uh, no genealogy, no beginning or end. And so he's both divine and yet is also the priest of the Most High God. So there's, there's something distinct from God too. If we were to attempt, so Exodus 31, 21 to 23. If we were to attempt to behold God or to approach him, we would be consumed. God the Father, who is the source or fountain of the Godhead, is unattainable, unapproachable, ineffable, incomprehensible to man because man is a creature. We must remember that God is infinite and that we are finite. God is eternal and we are temporal. God has always existed and we are made of dust. There is no end to the depths of God's glory, knowledge, majesty, greatness, etc. Therefore, we cannot behold or approach God the Father. He is the creator, and we are the work of his hands. In Exodus 33:20, God says to Moses, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Now, I'm going to jump ahead to something here because I'm just too excited to hold on to it, although I'm sure I mentioned it down below. Uh, and well, in fact, I do. I see it there. Um, but this is the incredible thing. When um, the apostles, Philip, one of the apostles, says to Jesus, Oh, you've told us all things. This is great. Now show us the Father, and we will be satisfied. And Jesus says to him, Philip, you moron. No, he says, <laughs> he kind of does, though, but he says, Philip, how long have I been with you? And still you do not know me. He who sees me sees the Father. How can you say to me, show me the Father? 
So just as it says in Colossians chapter 1, Jesus is the perfect image or icon of the invisible God. So the unapproachable God becomes approachable in the incarnation. The uh, God that we cannot behold, we have beheld his face in Jesus Christ. Okay. Then when you think about he's giving us this life through fellowship in the church, the proclamation of the word in the Eucharist, if we really understood that even 1% of what that reality is, we would be lined up on Saturday nights to get into the church for Sunday. You, you know, if we really comprehended that. If we cannot look directly upon the sun or actually approach, that is, draw near the sun, how do we know the sun exists? We know the sun exists because we experience both its light and warmth. Even when we attempt a quick glimpse of the sun in the sky, perhaps at its rising or setting, we are actually beholding the light that shines forth from the sun and not the sun itself. Did you know that? In fact, the light that you're seeing right now uh, is seven uh, uh, minutes old because it took seven minutes to reach the, the earth at the speed of light. When you see a star at night, you say, oh, that's a beautiful star. Um, if that star is 10,000 light years away, the light that you are seeing today with your eyes left that star 10,000 years ago. Okay, You're not really beholding the star. You're beholding the light that has traveled from that star to you 10,000 years ago. Okay. Um, although we cannot directly behold the sun, we can see its light. The sun's light is a good analogy of God the sun. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John eight twelve. Just as the sun's light reveals the sun, S-U-N, so the Son of God reveals the Father. No one has ever seen God, the only Son who is in the bosom of the Father. He has made him known, John 1.18. You read the scriptures closely. There is no way to come away and believe anything other than Jesus Christ is fully God in one person, but fully God in his divine nature and fully human apart from sin in his human nature. Jesus Christ is God, and yet uh, he's distinct from his Father and the Spirit. So therefore, God is both one, and God is three persons. May I ask something here? Uh, so there's the issue of Jesus being obedient mm -hmm. to the Father. Mm -hmm. So there are people that say that, no, he takes a lesser position. Right. And right. how, how do you explain that? Yeah, uh, two things. It's actually explained in Philippians chapter 2, where it says, though he was equal to God, he did not claim the equality as something to be exploited. Uh, other translations say as something th that must be grasped, but rather emptied himself and took on the form of a slave and made himself obedient to the Father. So it's in his incarnation uh, that he takes that lesser position. The actual word he emptied himself is uh, k uh, kinesis? No, kenosis. Call Hillary. Kenosis, I think, in the Greek, meaning to empty oneself. So he humbles himself 
and does not claim the equality with the Father even though he has it, but takes on the form of a slave or an obedient servant so that we will have that as a model. But also, while his will is one with the Father and his divinity, he also has a human will in becoming fully human. And it's that human will that is subjected to the divine will. And so that's why if, you, if, if you're going to say that Jesus was God and not really human, you'd have to ignore certain passages of the Bible. If you're going to say that Jesus uh, was human and not really God, you're going to have to ignore certain passages of the Bible. This is why, for example, the Jehovah's Witnesses used to use, um, they haven't been around that long, but they used to use the King James Version. But there were just too many problems because in their doctrine, uh, um, he is not God. He's like God. He was created by God and is inferior to God but superior to all other creatures. And he's the only one that God directly created. And then the Son creates everything else, which is not exactly what the scriptures say, by the way. And so um, they used to use the King James, but you had things like, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then you had things like, uh, before Abraham was, I am. And, you know, and so what they did was they came out with their own translation of the Bible, uh, called the World Translation of the Bible, and they changed all these references. So, for example, it will say, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God, with a small g. Uh, before Abraham was, uh, before Abraham was, I have been. Um, so they, they, they changed that. Um, uh, because they don't believe the Holy Spirit is God, they change all the personal references to him being a person and make him more of a force. The force of God moved over the waters. You know, the, this type of, of thing. Um, because there was no way to hold on to the King James Version or any other legitimate version of the Scripture and hold that doctrine. So they eventually had to change the scriptures, you know, um, but, uh, uh, but yeah, so, uh, but one of the arguments is uh, that, you know, that very argument, well, Jesus says the Father is greater than I. Um, well, it's, it, it's true, in the incarnation, uh, he humbles himself and takes that position of a servant, and in his human will, it is subject to the divine will, um, which is why he says, Father, not my will, but thy will be done. Um, and yet there's other places where he says, I am. Even when he says, I am the bread of life, he uses in, uh, the, in the Greek the same word for I am when God speaks to Moses. So he's making this relationship of his divinity related to the, the bread of life and, you know, on and on. So. Can I ask where... <clears throat> The Holy Spirit is supposed to be if Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. Where's the Holy Spirit? Flapping around. I, no, um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the being seated at the right hand of God is a is is the only line. If you read the early church fathers, it's the only line in the creed that was considered to be metaphorical. 
In other words, it's not believed that now, if you were, if he was to reveal this to you, it, it, that may be how you see it, because that's how he reveals himself, right? In you know, and uh, Stephen sees him standing at the right hand of the Father to receive him. But what it really means is that when it's like someone, someone's right hand man, he shares fully in the majesty, glory, divinity, power, authority of the Father. That's what it means to be seated at the right hand of of the Father. But I don't think when you get to heaven and we transcend the way we comprehend things here that you're going to see like the old man sitting in the center chair. In fact, I don't think you'll see an old man at all. Um, In fact, uh, in, in early Christianity, it was considered heretical to depict the Trinity with the exception of Rublev's Trinity of the Three Angels. Because if you depict God the Father, um, there's two problems. One is you're depicting him as a, as a man when he's spirit, okay? Um, masculine, but not a male, okay? Um, and, but also, when Jesus in the icon is seated next to him, Jesus looks about how old? 33. The old man looks like he's much older. What's the implication? One, one, was before the one was before the other. Yeah. So that's why you were never allowed to depict God the Father in iconography in the early church. Well, if Jesus is sitting at his right hand, that you're also assuming that he's in one place. Right. Right? Yeah, and reigning. And the idea of sitting is that he is, in a sense, lounging. He has accomplished his work. But in another sense, he continues to plead before... I mean, there's different images. We have the one of him being before the altar of God, beseeching the Father on our behalf as the high priest, too. So there are different you know, images of God. We haven't gone into the filioque, but I didn't know if we'd have time today or not. But go ahead. All right, well, does that in any way, uh, and you can strike this if you like, imply any inferiority? Well, that would be the argument of the, of the orthodox position is that it does, it, it, it threatens two things. One is it creates a dual source of the Godhead, that the Spirit proceeds from Father and Son. Therefore, there's a dual source or fountain for the Godhead. That's a problem because then you are robbing the Father of what is particular or uh, what makes him distinct as a person, as the sole fountain and source of the Godhead. So um, this is why uh, today in dialogue between Rome and the East, um, it's kind of funny when you read it, but they say whatever it is that we mean by the filioque, we don't mean and we don't believe we ever did. And I'm not sure that that's true. But anyway, um, we don't mean to imply that there's a dual source here. So that, that's the first. But the, the first problem is that it, 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 you lose the distinction of the Father as the source or the fountain of the Godhead. But yes, and they would say that the West has suffered from this idea of you know, the Father, the Son, and the other guy because of the filioque, because it just made him less and less. And this is why there was a movement, the Pentecostal movement in the West, because there was a hunger of the soul to restore the Holy Spirit, but it didn't really understand, you know, and so this hunger emerged, you know, in the spirit movement. Um, and uh, so, um, 
so I think there's, when you look at the filioque, there's really two issues. The first issue is, does any one part of the church have the authority to add to the creed or subtract from the creed when the creed belongs to the whole? Question very easily answered, I believe, no. If a, if a creed is by definition Catholic, then you cannot have a particular version of something that's Catholic. That's an oxymoron. Okay, you can't have something that's both particular and Catholic. Okay, if it's Catholic, it belongs to the whole. Okay, so you can't say this is our version of the whole. Right? <laughs> okay, so the first issue really with the filioque is, does it, even if it's theologically defensible, Okay, but many people much brighter than I am believe that it is. So, but even if it's theologically defensible, does the West have the authority to add it to the creed? Clearly not. Um, no one part of the church can change that which belongs to the whole. Okay. So what's the argument to defend it? Where does it come from? It's stupid. No, uh, I, uh, no, there's, no, well, what they... First of all, it was added, how, having said that no one has the authority to do this, it was actually added originally with good intention. It was um, in Spain uh, at a council called in Toledo, Spain in the late 500s, and they were dealing with Arianism, the idea that, that Jesus is not fully God as the Father is God. He is not of one substance with the Father, he's of like substance with the Father. And so what they wanted to do was to uh, say, anything that the Father has, the Son has too, to clarify that the Son is fully God. And so they said that the Spirit, one of the things that was unique to the Father was that the Spirit proceeded from Him. So they made the argument that the Spirit proceeded from the Father and the Son to make the argument. So it was added with good intention. What was strange is that um, the, the popes for centuries said, uh, after that council, um, you may have added it with good intention, but it does distort the theology, and no one has the authority to add something to the creed because the creed is Catholic, meaning whole. So therefore, we don't have the authority. Rome went so far to actually have the Nicene-Constantinopolitan creed chiseled into silver plates um, in St. Peter's Basilica without the filioque to make the point that this is the creed of the church, regardless of your intentions. The great irony, of course, is that those silver platelets are still there, and it's kind of like, you know, yeah, and um, so, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they'll get, I'm sure they'll, yeah, we'll have them up at the Methodist church here, yeah, 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 we'll just take them off your hands, and, um, but um, what they would, uh, uh, I guess what they would argue, and then some people have argued um, that, well, the Jesus, it's very clear that he sends the Spirit into the world. Well, the creed is not talking about the temporal mission of the Godhead. It's talking about the what's called the imminent trinity, the inner life of the Godhead. And so, in the sense of the temporal mission, of course, Jesus sends the Spirit from the Father into the world. In one sense, Jesus proceeds from the Spirit, too. He was conceived by the Holy Ghost. He was anointed by the Holy Ghost. He was driven. I mean, so, but it, the creed is not talking about the temporal mission uh, of the Godhead at that point. It's talking about the imminent life, the inner life of the Godhead. 
So that's that. That's another thing that's often because people sometimes look at me like, all right, so maybe we shouldn't have added it. But how bad can it be? It's very clear Jesus sends the Spirit into the world, but that's not what the creed is talking about. So, so that that is an issue. Um, but what they, I guess, would argue is that the Father is the sole source, um, but as a gift, he, the Spirit proceeds through. The, the Son and that the love they share is reciprocated in the Spirit. To be honest, the people who say it really is defensible, it gets into a level of theology, and I can't believe I'm admitting this on tape, where I don't follow the argument. Um, probably because it's just too high-leveled for me. Um, I don't understand. Uh, yeah, this is, wow, you're really going to have to cut this out. Um, uh, you know, because they argue for it. Um, but I I, I just see it as causing confusion between the imminent life of the Trinity and the temporal mission of the Trinity. I think it causes confusion in the persons of the Trinity. I think it does relegate, whether it was the intention or not, um, the third person of the Trinity not to the being the third person, but really almost to a third place, you know, within the the the, the Trinity well, and. We so, right, plus you just have, and even if you can make an argument that I don't understand where it's theologically okay, to me, if you have to work that hard on it, why don't we just take it out? But you really don't have any authority to add it to to begin with. And what's interesting is that a lot of people will also say to me, well, we are a Western church as Anglicans. We are born of the West. And I'll say, you know what, that was not the argument of the English Reformers. The principle of the English Reformation was to restore the Catholic Church in that realm to the faith and order of the undivided Church under the supreme authority of Scripture as God's Word. Um, They may have not understood that that meant that the Filioque would have to go, right? But if you follow the principle, the Filioque has to go, at least in the creed, at least in the creed. Because if we are going to profess the faith which is Catholic, truly Catholic, it has to be the faith that is professed by the whole and not by the Church of Rome. It has to be what's really Catholic. So it's interesting when these people make this argument that we're a Western church. That's really not the principle of the English reformers. They wouldn't have argued that we're a Western church. They would have said we, we really are an expression of the ancient church, the patristic church, the biblical church, just as much part of the ancient Catholic church as Rome is or Constantinople, um, under the authority of Scripture, you know. And so if you follow that principle, it's very hard to say that the filioque belongs in the, in the creed, even if you think it's theologically de- defensible. Um, yeah, Isaac. To, to, to go back to the, the whole right hand question. <clears throat> yeah. When the disciples are arguing about, you know, I'm going to sit on Jesus' right hand. I want to sit. And they ask him, and he says, you have no idea what you're asking. (laughs) Right, right. Um, They really don't, because it's not sitting on his right hand. Yeah. And and, if you lay that triangle down that you showed us at the beginning, you know, well, who's the Father's right hand? Jesus' right hand? Well, it's Jesus. The Holy Spirit. Oh. And who's the Holy Spirit's right hand? Well, it would be the Father again. Right. So, yeah. Right. 
That's actually an excellent point, Isaac, it, that in, in the sense of the Trinity, it, yeah, it's uh, being a circle in, in one sense. And yeah, is that there, um, yeah, and yeah, I think that's right on. Spot on, as they would say. <laughs> Spot on. So, um, um, I'm trying to find where I am. Um, no one has ever seen God, the only Son, who is in the bosom of the Father. He has made him known. John 1.18 Jesus also said, He who sees me, has seen the Father, John 14, 9. Colossians 1, 15 and 19 proclaims Jesus as, quote, the image of the invisible God, the word image being icon. The image of the invisible God, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Thus Jesus is the light of God, as the Nicene Creed. He is God of God, light of light, very God of very God. In Jesus, the essence of God is revealed. Quote, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. 1 John 1.5 It is Jesus who has made the Father known. The warmth of the sun is a good analogy for God the Holy Spirit. If you have the opportunity this July... <laughs> to go to the beach or this December, uh, or where, where we're in January now. Uh, at midday, take the time to lie down on a blanket. Close your eyes and you will feel the warmth of the sun fill your whole body. The warmth of the sun pervades our being. So it is with the Holy Spirit. St. Paul wrote, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? 1 Corinthians three sixteen. Also, for those who deny that the Spirit is a person, um, you have all the passages where the Spirit uh, bears witness, for example, to Jesus. So, you know, you, know, you have to be a person to, bear, to give testimony. Okay. Um, apart from the light and warmth of the sun, there would be no life on earth. It is our desire to be warmed that leads us into the sun's light. And it is in the light of the sun that the sun itself is revealed, S-U-N. So it is in our Christian life, apart from the Holy Spirit and Jesus, there would be no life. It is the warmth of the Holy Spirit that draws us into the light of Jesus. And it is in Jesus Christ that the Father is revealed. Um, any, any questions before we continue on? Thoughts? I am writing this month's article on the Holy Trinity in the midst of a July heat wave. We'll all have to imagine that. We've endured some rather high temperatures with very heavy humidity this past week. Global warming. Global warming, yes, thank you. <laughs> um, it has been amazing to see the steam rising off the road following a passing thunder shower. I sure do miss my pool, which collapsed under the heavy ice and snow this past winter. A nightly dip in the cooler pool water 
would sure help take the edge off. Pool water, falling ice, and rising steam. These three forms of the one substance of H2O provides us with another good analogy for thinking about the Holy Trinity. And I'm not going to go through, through that again. Um, um, okay. Uh, when Christians speak of the incarnation, God becoming man in the person of Jesus Christ, we speak of the divine creator entering and becoming part of his own creation. Uh, the incarnation is the coming together of God and man, the creator and the creation, the infinite and the finite, the eternal and the temporal. When we speak of the incarnation of Jesus, we are speaking of the infinite God taking on finite form. So this is still part of the water analogy, but if water represents God the Father, then ice, often conceived as frozen water or water taking on form, represents God the Son. Ice is tangible, thus is the Son. He is the same substance as the Father, yet is a distinct person of the Holy Trinity. Just as water and ice share one substance, H2O, and yet are distinct forms of this one substance, so the Father and the Son are one in substance, that is divinity, and yet distinct in personhood. Jesus makes the infinite and invisible God known, Colossians 1.15. I have seen icicles hanging from the top of my house or from ledges along the roadside that seem to encapsulate all the wonder and beauty of creation. In Jesus, we see the very wonder and beauty of the Father, for in him the fullness of the Godhead was pleased to dwell, Colossians 1.19. Um, okay. You know, there, there's so much more that we can go on with the, the Trinity. As you can see here, I have pages written about it. Um, but what I'm going to do is just read these two here and um, skip those. Just assume that it was brilliant. Do you have this online? Um, I could, and I easily could send it to you. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, God is love. The Holy Scriptures clearly establish this. However, if God the Father is unattainable, that is, if we who are sinful, finite creatures cannot attain to an all-holy, infinite God, then how can we share in the love of the Father? How can we partake in something that is infinitely beyond our reach? Um, this goes again into something I was sharing before, but I also want to point out, um, I think I get into this way about love. Just remind me if we don't get into the idea of, of love uh, and how can, if God is love, uh, how can he be eternal um, before creation? So if we don't, if I don't read about that, remind me, and we'll get, we'll close on that. Um, so how can we partake in something that is infinitely beyond our reach? The answer is found in God's holy word. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, which has been given to us. Romans five five. Thus, it is the Holy Spirit who enables us to know 
the love of God the Father. How? The Holy Spirit draws us into the life of Christ, in whom we come to know God as our Father. So the Spirit is in the world now, bringing us into the life of Christ, in whom we come to know God as our Father. We cannot know the Father or his love apart from Christ Jesus, for Christ alone is his Son. No one has ever seen God, the only Son, who is in the bosom of the Father has made him known. Thus the Holy Spirit unites us to the life of Christ Jesus, in whom we come to know God as Father through adoption and grace, and to know his immeasurable love for us. Quote, when the time had fully come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Galatians 4, 4-6. Knowing the Father's love for us is evidence of the work of the Holy Trinity within us. Life in the Spirit is life in Christ, and life in Christ means adoption by the Father. Once adopted, we come to know the unknowable God and to know him personally and intimately. We call him Abba, Father, an intimate address, and he calls us his children. Through the Holy Spirit, we share in the eternal relationship between God the Father and God the Son. So the Trinity is far more than a theological concept. The Holy Trinity is at work in your heart and life today, right now. The Holy Spirit is drawing us into Christ in whom we come to know the Father and his eternal and divine love. Christian life must begin with the Holy Spirit. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, then you cannot partake in Christ. If you do not partake in Christ, you can never know the unknowable God. Because by being adopted into that relationship, you are, you are entering into the relationship that the Son has had with his Father from all eternity. And what's really cool is that the very love that the Father has had for his own Son from all eternity is the love in which he bestows upon you and how he sees you. And this is why we are acceptable to him. Not because we've earned our way, which would be arrogant, but because we could not earn our way, and he gives us the, uh, the righteousness of his son when we come to him. The word charis in Greek means, does anyone know? Charis, gift of grace. It means gift of grace. Therefore, a charismatic is one who has received the gift and anointing of the Holy Spirit. So by that definition, I hope we're all charismatic. Um, because if we're not charismatic, we don't have the Holy Spirit. Such persons are no known as anointed ones, or more commonly called Christians, anointed ones. The word Christ means anointed, so we are Christians, the anointed. By whom have we been anointed? The Holy Spirit. The word cannot know the love of God the world cannot know the love of God the Father in the same way that a Christian can, for the world has not received the Holy Spirit. And I, Jesus, will pray the Father, and he will give you another counselor, to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, 
because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells in you and will be with you. And be, I'm sorry, and will be in you. John 14, 16 to 17. It is the Holy Spirit who sets us apart, that is, consecrates and sanctifies us from the world. It is important to ask God the Father daily to pour the Holy Spirit into our hearts. Quote, For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be open. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? So what happens if you don't speak in tongues? Luke eleven ten to 13. I would say that a close reading of the Bible says that not everyone does speak in tongues. Um, Paul, Paul makes that clear. You know, some have this gift, some have that gift. He says, I wish you all had the experience. He says, I have it, and I wish you could all, just like if I go see a great movie, I wish you could all see it. Right, <clears throat> um, but that doesn't mean that everyone speaks in in tongues. Um, but there and, are certain and, churches that believe that that's the only way you can. Yeah, and I would say that's un unbiblical. Now to say that tongues don't exist at all would also be unbiblical, <laughs> you know. But to say that you have to speak in tongues in order to be saved, or to prove that you have the Holy Spirit, I would say is is unbig unbiblical. Another gift is the interpretation of tongues, mm -hmm. which makes the speaking in tongues worthwhile to everybody else. Right. Because without it, mm -hmm. you talk yeah. to yourself. Yeah. yeah. If you really want to freak them out, just next time you go to a church and they're all speaking in tongues, say, well, doesn't the Bible say there has to be an interpreter? I have the gift of interpretation. When they say, well, what are we saying? I say, Hail Mary, full of grace, <laughs> the Lord is with thee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. She has a demon. <laughs> okay, but yeah, I would say to say that one must speak in tongues is unbiblical. To say that that tongues uh, is ridiculous is also unbiblical. Um, and, uh, it is the Holy Spirit who sets us apart from the world. Let's see. Da, 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 da. Okay, the world can only know the love of God indirectly. We know and have received the love of God the Father directly and personally. So the world can only know the love of God indirectly, but in Christ, we know it directly. We have received the love of God the Father. We have received the love God the Father has had for his own Son from all eternity. It is not that we are somehow more worthy than others. This gift of God's love is just that, a gift. It has been given to each one of us un deservedly quote while we were still weak at the right time christ died for the ungodly god shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners christ died for us since therefore we are now justified by his blood much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of god for if while we were enemies we were reconciled to god by the death of his son much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life Romans 5, 6 to 10, in case you think I'm making it up. Okay. Saved by his life, not by your life, 
not by what by not by what I do or don't do, not by what you do or don't do. We are saved by His life. It is the Holy Spirit who enables us to share in the life of Christ. Um, I, I am going to share that thing about love right now. Um, I shared this once with a Unitarian. It made no impact, so as far as I know. Um, you can get almost anyone who acknowledges that there is a God to say God is love. It's very popular to say God is love because John Lennon said it. And um, so uh, a lot of people are like, oh, yeah, God is love. Yeah, man, you know, God is love. It happens to be true because the Holy Scriptures say it too. God is love. God equals love. So true love is the H2O of God, okay? Uh, the oneness of the Trinity is love, okay? Um, but here's the problem. We all know the expression, love isn't love until... Yeah, until you give it away, until you bestow it upon another. There ha- for love to truly be love, there must be an object of the love, okay? Love can't simply be. Love is something that is expressed, bestowed upon. So, to use limited language, if you go back to a time before time before there's any creation at all, and only God exists, and there's no Trinity, okay? If there's no Trinity, and only God exists, and God is love, upon whom is that love bestowed? Well, right, but if there is no Trinity, as Unitarians say, and as um, some other um, groups have have said if there is no trinity and there is no creation and God is love he just loves himself I guess just loves himself love has to be bestowed upon another right so the fact is that the answer is exactly what Sandra was saying is that the, the trinity is eternal The Father has always loved the Son. And the Father and Son, to dance on the precipice of Filioque here, uh, have always loved the Spirit. And the Spirit has always reciprocated that love to the Father and the Son. There can be no love apart from the Trinity. Um, because there'd be no object of affection, so to speak. And so love cannot just simply exist. Love must be bestowed. There must be an object of one's affection. Um, This is why, ultimately, God does not need us. He created us out of love to love us, to call us into relationship with him. Um, But he does not need us to be God. Um, If we don't acknowledge him as God, he is no less God. And if we don't exist, he is still love, because the love is the eternal dance of the Trinity. Uh, Any thoughts, questions, reflections on that? 
That was very poetic. Yeah. <laughs> that was very nice. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, so it's uh, it's just a good argument to use with people because if they if unless they're like one of these hardcore atheists, which is what I say to them is why so angry, grasshopper? <laughs> you, you know, they're always so. Yeah, there's no God. Well, you know what? I don't believe in Pinocchio either, but I don't go around going, there's no Pinocchio! I mean, why are you so upset if there's no God? You know, I, I remember when we were adopting um, uh, Rebecca, and they, and they said, you know, really, I mean, she had lived with us for so long, they're like, really, you shouldn't actually do um, baptism until the adoption is legal, right? You shouldn't baptize her. And I said... Why, do you recognize as the state that something happens besides her getting wet? Good one. Uh, I mean, seriously. Why can't I baptize her? Mm. I mean, her... <laughs> Turn over to Herod. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Send him to the other jurisdiction. Yeah. But it's like, yeah, if it makes no difference, mm. well, you, you know, why so angry, grasshopper? Um, but with the... Uh, but with the people that are, will admit, oh, yeah, I mean, almost anyone you meet, you know, oh, yeah, I'm spiritual but not religious. I'm not into organized religion. Uh, but I believe in, you know, something greater than myself, which usually, by the way, you could make the argument that no, they don't because they're in the interpreter of what is true and what is not. So they don't believe in something greater than themselves. They only believe in... Uh, yeah, your your, your daughter. No, it's no just I know. Anger, anger, it's just anger. anger. Really? Um, yeah. um, no. Um, no. Yes. On. Over in England. Yeah. He's just a mad, mad man. It's like you don't not believe in God. You hate him too much not to believe exactly. in him. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, it, yeah it, you don't how can you hate him? Yeah. How can you, uh, yeah. you, you have to have someone to hate. But his, well, his yeah. Arguments, there's, no, there's no logic in his arguments at all. Well, right. It, 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 it's the old <laughs> thing that, you know, I don't believe in God. Have you told him? I certainly have. <laughs> so, okay. But, I mean, almost anyone's willing to say, oh, yes, God is love. God is love. And then just say, well, okay. Well, if God is love... um. Whom did God love before there was creation? Um, so it's just... Also, by the way, if you use the argument of a, a watch, uh, you know, you look at a watch, it's so complex. I have two choices. I can believe that it's an accident that it all kind of came together and it only seems to keep time, right? Um, and it's all an accident. Or I can assume that because there's a lot of things in there that have been put into a particular order for it to work, there must be a what? A watchmaker, right? So, um, uh, as uh, one of my former deacons, God rest his soul, used to say, I don't know why it was a, a, a train station in Wales, but that's what it was in his analogy. If I'm pulling into a train station in Wales, and I look out the window, and on the green hill there are white stones placed seemingly in order to say, Welcome to Wales... I have two choices. I can believe that by accident those stones fell into um, that, that place 
and it only seems to convey a message of welcome, or I can believe that because they are in order, it's too much of a coincidence that it was an accident. So they, the order was put there to convey a message, and the message is welcome. His analogy being that all of creation screams, Hi! Hello, you know, anyone at home? And and yet people will say, yeah, but you know what? That doesn't mean, however, even if there is a watchmaker, even if there is a creator, that doesn't mean um, that he cares for us or the details of our life or that he has come into this world to save us in Jesus. Um, and there is some truth to that. You can't make the argument for the incarnation purely on logic. However, what I would say is, um, I remember talking to one young man who said, oh yeah, no, I'm, I'm not a religious person, um, I'm, I'm an artist. I don't know what that meant. Like, if you're an artist, you can't possibly <laughs> believe in God, or, or at least uh, not an organized religion. And he's um, Yeah, he's creative about it. And, and I said, um, when you create, I said, is it purposeful? Or are you like one of those people that go, and try to sell it for a million dollars? Huh? Okay, there you go. I don't know, but yeah. Um, and he says, no, 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 it's purposeful. And I said, right. And are you trying to communicate something of yourself with it? You, you know, so you see where I was going with the whole thing is that the fact is, is that there is detail in what you do. You don't just kind of go, you know, and say, let's sell it, right? Um, and I said, have you ever looked at creation, the order I mean, for example, just take birds. There aren't just birds. Like a creator said, yeah, I'm going to make birds, right? So they're all black or they're all white or they're all the same size. No, some are red, like cardinals, and some are blue, like blue jays, and some are yellow, like finches, and some are orange and black and white, like Oreos. Or it's all about the Sorry, again, thinking of the cookie. That's how they pronounce it in Baltimore. The Baltimore ah, well. Oreos. The Oreos. The, see, I was trying to relate to our dear brothers and sisters down in Baltimore. So, um, you, you know, the fact is, is that God is taking cre- incredible detail. It shows that he does care about the details. And that's exactly what Jesus says. He comes in and says, you know, look at the birds of the air. You know, look at the lilies of the field. I do care about, I know every hair in your head. Now, with me, it doesn't have to be God to figure that one out. But, you know, but, um, oh, for you, those of you who can't see me, I'm bald. So, um, anyway, although Sarah says, Dad, you're not completely bald. You've got some underachievers up there. <laughs> so, anyway. So, anyway, um, uh you know, the detail, though, is, is there. It really, to me, not only screams that there is a creator or a watchmaker, but that he really is organized. He has brought order to his artwork, and he cares about the intrinsic details of each little piece, of each little piece. Um, and the only religion, as far as I can tell, that would match the, a creator who cares so much, you know, about each little detail is Jesus. 
you know. Um, but anyway, that's the whole argument about love. I don't know why these atheists though so are so is mad. God for a Calvinist limited love? Is God for? And how can I, you can erase this from your tape, but how how can Calvinism be Christian? Well, I have less of a problem with Calvin than I do with Calvinism. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of what Calvin said that was perfectly scriptural and patristic, um, but I, no, it, when it gets into it, where, where Calvin upholds the concept that. It is not our own doing, but a gift of grace, you know, that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ. I mean, he's, he's, he's right on, okay? We can no more attain to an infinite God. Um, you know, this is what the whole Tower of Babel was. If we could build, we, you know, we can get to him, and you, 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 you can't, okay? Um, but when it goes into Calvinism, where there, there is no free will, uh, and God just chooses to give grace to some and not to others, and we should just be happy if He saves one and well, and all. It to and, well, and I would argue that that level of Calvinism, and I'm sure there's Calvinists out there who will be writing me emails now, um, saying you don't understand. But um, I would point them to. Um, oh, sorry, I forgot. Um, I would point them to um, God wills that all men be saved. So it's not that he, he only wills some to be saved. I, I would also uh, point out that Jesus says, I, when I am lifted up, shall draw all men to, to myself. Um, I would also uh, point out um, uh, to, to them where Jesus does speak about how much he cares for his children and even those who have gone wayward, you know, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've longed to, you know, um, you know, and so I, I would say that when you get into the idea that a predestination is foreknowledge, I mean, God knows whether I will die trusting in him or myself, right? That, of course, there is an elect. God knows if I'm going to make it or not, you know. Um, I think it's easier to believe that everyone makes it than... Than to believe that only that that, that a couple do, yeah, and I I would say that ultimately there's plenty of scriptures that say that really the ones who go to hell really are the ones who want to, <laughs> you know, they're really the ones that you know that that choose, um, exercising their yeah, exercising their free will to go there, so I, I would say that. Um, uh, you know, Calvin is not necessarily as, as bad as some uh, Catholic-minded think. Right, Calvin wasn't really a Calvinist in many ways. That, that, that's, that's true, you know. I mean, uh, Pastor Linda used to joke with me that if John and Charles Wesley were to show up on a Sunday and go to um, our Mass and then go to their service, he, they would assume we were the Methodists because we were doing communion on a Sunday. We were using the prayer book. Um, we emphasized, you, you know, certain things, you know, and, you, you know, so it's often true that 
you know, the movement is different from, from the other. But I have never bought into this idea that God desires predestined some for heaven and others for, for hell. However, I can understand if him giving us free will to choose him or not versus, because if I could make Christine love me, then I, do, I don't really have her love. You, you know, um, which is why I had to make her love me. But anyway, um, uh, I was going to give her free will, but she exercised it inappropriately. Um, now, what I do is I made her fall in love with me before she ever saw me in person. It's true, actually. So anyway, got to do what you got to do. So um, bless you. Bless you. Okay. Um, we're we're almost done, I promise. Um, I'll stop asking questions. No, no, it, no. They're good. They're good questions. Well, you had another one. Well, Calvin, wasn't there two in there? Okay. Well, I'm all right. If Jesus wants us all to be in heaven and that's His will, why is there a Gehenna? Because there are people, literally, those people who reject that. Who reject that. Um, I mean, that is his will, but there's a whole lot of things going on. For example, it's very popular to say everything happens for a reason. I don't believe everything happens for a reason. You'd have to believe in double predestination to believe that everything happens for a reason. I believe that God, I believe that God can work through everything to bring about good. But if everything happens for a reason, then everything's unfolding exactly as God intends it to unfold. Mm-hmm. Look at this world. If this is God's intention, wow. I would believe with the patristic fathers that we are far from God's intention for this world. And you know, and Jesus is about trying to bring back into right order God's intention for this world. Um uh, so yeah, I believe that he will work all things for good, but I don't believe that everything you know happens for a reason. Do I believe if if, if do I believe if a young woman, God forbid, God forbid, but if a young woman uh, is raped in an alley by five guys, do I believe that even through that horrific experience, that God can bring some good into her life and use her to bring good into others' life? Yes, I do. I'll tell you what I don't believe. I'm not going to walk down that alley and say to her, this happened for a reason. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You you know? So, um, even if it were true, I wouldn't say it. (laughs) But but it's not, you know? So. um, uh, All right, so a little of this we've already heard too, but I'll just go through it quickly. Um, The second person of the Holy Trinity became man. God is not merely a superior being as compared to the rest of creation. Creation is incomparable to God. It is not that God is greater than we, that we worship him. He is altogether other from any part of his creation. The greatness or majesty of God is is infinite and immeasurable. Because God is unique in that he alone is not created, that is, not part of the creation, nothing is comparable to God. 
the gulf or distance between God's eternal being and the created order is without end. The universe, in all of its vastness, splendor, and majesty, is no closer to reflecting or approaching the essence of God than is a single grain of sand on the seashore or a single cell within the human body. I mean, in one sense, the universe does. It is an icon of the Creator. But in another sense, it's no closer to reflecting the Creator than, is the, than a human cell or a piece of sand, because it's infinite. Um, God is not part of the creation. He is the Creator. The created order can never attain to God, for God is wholly other, eternally beyond the grasp of any part of creation. God is not a greater being. God is being. He is the source of all that is. Through his word, God has revealed himself to be one in essence or being. That is, there is one God. And yet within the Godhead, there are three divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. All three persons are God, and God is three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost have always existed. Before time itself was created, before there was anything in the created order, God the Holy Trinity was. The Father is eternal, the Son is eternal, the Holy Ghost is eternal. Yet, as the Athanasian Creed says, there is not three eternals, but one eternal. God the Holy Trinity is without beginning and without ending. God, although he acts within time in creation, is timeless. Um, the saying that uh, our bishop said once, I don't think it's his originally, but it, it stuck with me when he said it, is that Christmas is the birth in time of the timeless Son of God. The birth in time of the timeless Son of God. I mean, I just love that. Um, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is Emmanuel, which means? Yeah, God with us. God with us. Uh, the incarnation is the birth in... Oh, here it is. The incarnation is the birth and time of the timeless Son of God. God the Son, the second person of the Holy Trinity, entered into creation and became man. It is in Jesus Christ that God and his creation meet. The Creator has joined himself to his creation. The one who is before time has entered into time. He who knew no beginning was conceived by the Holy Ghost and born of the Virgin Mary. You think of the womb of Mary. It was the first place where at his conception were the creator and the creation, where the eternal and the temporal, where timelessness and time, where the infinite and the finite, where heaven and earth came together was in her womb. The very first tabernacle of God incarnate is the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Um, okay. Um, the early church fathers tell us that God became man, that man may become God, that is by grace, not by nature. We never become God by nature. Okay, But we will, by grace, as a gift, always become more and more like God. God entered into his creation in order to allow us to become partakers of the divine nature. If Jesus is not God, then the gulf between God and his creation remains infinite. A creature cannot save us. Not St. Michael the Archangel, not some other type of creature or angel. A creature cannot, because the distance between any creature, no matter how advanced he is to us, 
um, the, the distance between us and that creature is, although great, measurable. But the distance between that creature and God remains infinite. We as creatures cannot attain to God, so God comes to us in the person of Christ. If Christ is not God, then we shall never know God, because we can only know him in Christ. 2 Peter 1, 3-4 states, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, that through these you may escape from the corruption that is in the world because of passion and become partakers of the divine nature. If Christ does not have the divine nature, how can we become partakers of the divine nature? God has shared in our nature that we may share in his. By sharing in the divine nature through Christ Jesus, we become by grace what he is by nature, the children of the Father. For you, quote, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Um, and then I have several references to, to his divinity. This is the one I made reference to before with Sandra, Philippians 2, 5-8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. That's that word kenosis in Greek. Emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Um, others, for the grace of God has appeared for the salvation of all men, training us to renounce irreligion and worldly passions and to live sober, upright, and godly lives in this world, awaiting our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for, for us to redeem us from all iniquity and to purify for himself a people of his home. Uh, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear... Oh, that's Titus 2, 11 to 14. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us, Matthew 1, 23. See to it that no one makes a prey of you by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the universe, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of the deity, meaning God, dwells bodily, and you have come to the fullness of life in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. Colossians chapter 2, 8-10. John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and we shall be satisfied. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and yet you do not know me, Philip? He who sees me sees the Father. I also think, of course, of when uh, Thomas sees the risen Lord. What does he, what does he say? My Lord, and my, Lord and my God. And, and Jesus doesn't say, hey, whoa, 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 I can see why you're overcome, but see that you do not do that as the angel does 
with John in Revelation three times. Jesus doesn't reprimand him. Why? Because it was appropriate for him to call him both Lord and God. Okay. Um, Thus, to know Jesus Christ is to know God himself. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. We could not attain to God, so God came to us in the person of Christ through the Incarnation. The second person of the Holy Trinity, God the Son, became man. It is no ordinary man who calls you into relationship with him. God did not send an angel or a semi-divine agent into the world. God has come himself into the world that we may know him and be known by him.